Well, you all look so cheery and happy. I hope you still are after we do Hebrews 6 this morning. Um, I, I, in the week that we started, um, 13 weeks ago when we started the book of Hebrews, I immediately had people coming up to me saying, I can't wait for Hebrews 6. I can't wait to see what you're going to do with that. And uh, people who anticipate it understood and have read forward and, and they know what Hebrews 6 contains. It's it's actually one of the five most difficult passages in the entire Bible because of the implications that it presents forward. And if you've never really spent time in Hebrews before, especially in Hebrews 6, I think this would be really eye-opening for you this morning uh, of what it has to communicate to us. I had someone come to me after the 915 service that said, you know, you're normally such an uplifting, cheery person. I didn't feel that after today's service. I hope that that's not the case for you, but rather that we really are in a position where we just let God's Word speak to us this morning and, and let it say what it says. It, it is what it is, and it's very straightforward, uh, but it's got multiple interpretations by different individuals. I'll get into that with you in just a minute. My, my prayer throughout this week has, has been that God would help protect us from any kind of imbalance or haughtiness when we come to a passage like this. That we would not be guilty of laying our own theological grid. And whether you believe it or not, you have your own personal theology. What you believe about God. And what you bring into the room this morning, into this auditorium, is your personal theology about what you believe about God. The challenge is to take our own personal theological grid and set that aside and just really let God's Word speak. That's what I'm going to just invite you to do with me this morning. To do something different than what I typically do, I'm going to put the entire passage, the full eight verses that we're going to look at this morning, up on the screen so that we can look at it in a, in a big nutshell, and then we'll dive into it. But I want to pray with you before we do that. So let's look at the whole passage first. And it starts off Hebrews 6.1 this way. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ... Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And this will we, we will do if God permits. Verse 4, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Verse 7, For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is tilled receive a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. How do you take a very, very difficult text like this and apply it directly to your life? You can see the implications coming out of it already for what you just read. How you apply this to your life strongly depends upon your personal view of God. Uh, my experience is that individuals fall typically into one of three categories. Uh, throughout the course of my life and my own personal family, I had family members who would fall on the side of being very legalistic. And in that legalism, they would look at God as the God of the Bible as being someone who's incredibly judgmental and vindictive. 
and just waiting for you to mess up so that they can be pounded into the ground. That's not the God of the Bible. Now, on the opposite side of the spectrum are individuals who only see God through the lens of grace. And they believe all things are permissible and they tend to live, live their life a little bit loose on the boundary line. But those are two opposite ends of the pendulum. And in the middle, there tends to be individuals who, who approach Him as though um, God is this more balanced person. And, and they see Him as like 50% judgment and 50% grace. And they live their entire life as though they're walking down some kind of a tightrope Uh, believing in God's mercy and also knowing that He's a God of judgment and thinking maybe the things that I did in my past are going to come back to haunt me and God's going to judge me on that. And and I feel that all three of those categories fail. All three of those views are an incomplete picture of God because God is 100% a God of mercy and He's 100% a God of justice. He's not 50% of one or 60% of one. He's complete. He's God. And so He's completely forgiving. Not 80% forgiving and 20% judgmental. That is not the God of the Bible. So what I'm going to offer you this morning is a fourth position. One in which you allow the Word of God to speak to you right where you're at this morning. No matter what you brought into this auditorium with you. Here's why. I'm going to pray with you right now that the Holy Spirit would give interpretation. God says that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And so I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would come alongside you, sit right next to you, and help you to see things that maybe you wouldn't have seen before. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, each person in this auditorium has to decide which category that they might lean towards or fall into. But ultimately, we just want to surrender and ask that you would speak to us. God, I ask specifically that Your Spirit would be the Comforter whom we know You to be and that You would sit right next to the individual in the seat that they're in. Put Your loving arm around them and instruct and teach and guide. Show us, Father, how this would apply to our life and how You want us to view You and understand You. And we'll give You the praise and the glory and the honor for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, here's what we have to understand. We, we saw this last week. We've got a group of individuals who are the recipients of this letter in the first century, and they've been told by the author that they're people who are of the milk of the Word. In other words, they're still in kindergarten. They haven't advanced at all. They're not maturing in the faith. And he was really hard with them. We used that word nothros. He said, you're lazy. You're not maturing in God's Word. So he's straight up with them, and they have to own it. And yet now you're going to see in chapter 6, he's going to give a solution. And he gives a solution to them right away. But in the midst of giving them a solution, he describes a terrifying condition regarding this impossibility to repent that some people actually reach. Understand that this passage that you're looking at is all about moving forward. It's a call to spiritual progress, which is really a key for us in 2014. Here at New Hope, we're just moving forward. We're going to keep responding to what God's calling us to do. It's all about maturing in Christ. You want to know God's purpose for your life? It's jumping into the deep end of the pool so that you understand the God of the Bible better. So let's go to verse 1 and see what it has to say to us. Hebrews 6 and verse 1 says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity 
not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. That's kind of a surprising thing when he says, therefore let us leave, because he's just evaluated them and said, you're like children. He's declining to go over the old ground. So the word therefore is like a summarization of what we looked at last week. He's just summarizing saying, therefore, since we've already established this, let's just move on. So here's the remedy right off the front end. He says, advancement is the key to your maturity. You've got to mature. And if you're going to make progress, you've got to leave some things behind. So he uses this word aphiomi. Now, if you have your Bible open this morning to Hebrews chapter 6, you might want to circle the words leave and go on to because they're really linked together. Leave is one very important word when he says leave some things behind. But in the Greek language, go on to is also one word that's represented by three in the English language. These two being linked together are really the first step in becoming spiritually mature. This word leave is significant. The word aphiame or aphiomai, It literally means to bid farewell, to set something aside and say, bye-bye, it's in my past, it's gone. Why is that significant? Because the same word is used in relation to your forgiveness of sin. When you've been forgiven of sin by God, God has used this word, a fiamai, of you. And it's very significant to you. The example comes from Matthew chapter 9. It's many places throughout the Bible. But in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus encounters a guy who's paralyzed. A man is brought to him who's on a stretcher. And Jesus' first words to him are, don't fear, don't be afraid, my son, for your sins have been forgiven you. For your sins have been a fiamai. Now the scribes and the Pharisees get really ticked. They're so upset with Jesus because he's literally said to this man, bye-bye to your sins. They're in your past. I am forgiving you. So Jesus goes on to say in Matthew chapter 9, so that you would know that the Son of Man has the power and the authority to forgive sins on earth. I say to you, rise up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks away. See, this concept of a fiamai is really significant to you and I today in 2014 because when we are forgiven of our sins, we've left them behind. It's part of the the immature things, the things that are the basics of the faith, that Jesus died to forgive you. So you've said, a fiamai, that baggage that you think you're carrying with you this morning from your mistakes in your past, God said farewell to that. It's not part of who you are anymore. Now, for some of you this morning, that's enough. You could stop right there and say, I'm good with that. I'm so glad I came this morning. I get to hear that God forgave me and it's not part of who I am anymore. That's in my past. Well, a FMI is just part of it. You've got to leave things behind in order to go forward. This is why it's significant. If you're still embroiled in your past, if you're still caught up in your old life, your old sinful behavior, you're never going to be able to move on. So that's why he says, leave it behind you Go forward. Go forward to what? Go on to maturity. So he says in the Greek language, let us go on is translated this way. Let us be carried forward. In other words, something's got to carry you. You can't do it on your own. Well, who's doing that for us? God. God is the one that keeps bearing us up. It's God who enables you to progress. 
As you receive His Word, you spend time in His Word, and you act on His Word, and you respond to the Holy Spirit, that brings you along and carries you to maturity. This is what he's writing about here. These six foundational truths. They're in your notes this morning, but I want you to see them on the screen also as well. These six things that are kind of the ABCs. We're going to move through them real quickly and get into the hard part of verse 4. But here's what he's saying. Let's not lay again a foundation of repentance, of faith, of instructions about washings, which means baptism, of laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, here's what you should notice if you're writing in your Bible. The first two are about your relationship to God, who you are to God. The next two, it's a coupling of your relationship to each other, to the assembly of the believers, the church. And the last two are about your relationship to future things, things that haven't happened yet. So this first one, this, this repent, Let's understand clearly what this is because this entire passage is built on repenting. So repent is this. A person is walking this direction and they have a change of mind and they literally 180 degrees decide, I'm going this way. That's the word repent. It's not a set of feeling bad about sin. That's not what repentance is. That's remorse when somebody feels bad about sin. Repentance is... I not only feel bad, I'm changing my behavior and going completely the opposite direction. That's the concept of repentance. So he links it by saying repentance leads to faith. That's the next thing in the foundational truths. Because once somebody has repented, then they're able to exercise faith. See, repentance and faith are linked inseparably in the Bible. Here's an example for you from Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 verse 21 says, Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. When you see the word repent used in the Bible, it's always linked with faith. Repentance first, then expressed faith in Jesus. So the New Testament model is this. The person who repents leads to faith in Jesus and then becomes baptized. The third thing in that list of foundational truths. And they become part of the local church. Now why does he say it as washings? Because the imagery in the Bible is that when someone goes into the baptismal tank or into the lake and they're immersed in water, it's this image of their sins being washed away. Well, it's not literally washing away their sins. Jesus did that for us on the cross. But the imagery in the tank is that someone's buried in the water in baptism and raised again to newness of life. That's the washings that he's talking about. See, these are all part of the symbolisms he's saying are the, the six foundational truths and then he goes on in verse 3 to say, we're, we're going to leave that behind us, and this we will do if God permits. Now, that's a very interesting way of saying it. You, you have to ask yourself, why say it that way? Because everything about your spiritual life revolves around what God enables you to do, how God empowers you and His permission. See, God is the one who enables us to move forward. And what He wants us to do is press forward. So this requires way more than Mark Kring standing on the edge of the platform saying, you've got to mature. That doesn't work. I mean, that's just like a basketball coach telling his team to play better. He's actually got to get out the diagrams and show them how to play better. Well, the same thing is true with us. We can't just move forward just because we're verbally challenged. We need God's help because maturity is not automatic, is it? I mean, if you're a parent, you know maturity is not automatic. I've raised four children, 
And if I didn't nurture and build into my kids, and my wife the same thing, we could potentially have adult children. Have you ever met somebody who's an adult child? Okay. You don't have to put your hands up. It might be sitting next to you. I don't know, but I'm not calling you out. The, The truth is an adult child is more common than we think. Someone who incorporates an adult body, but they still make childlike behavioral decisions. What was necessary in that person's life? That someone who's further ahead than them has come alongside and built into them and nurtured and matured and in some cases disciplined. Well, that's true in our spiritual life. God has to come alongside us and mature us. That's why He says you've got to be carried along. Now, these six things, we're going to set them aside now. These six things are so important and we must understand them. But progress to maturity in Christ is made by building on that foundation. So let me summarize verses 1, 2, and 3 this way. You know your ABCs. Now, take them and allow God to move you forward to maturity. Build on them. Here we come into verse 4, 5, and 6, which is among those most hotly debated items throughout the entire Bible. Because there's so many interpretations of what this is saying. So let me read the verses to you again, and I'll tell you a few of the views. It says this in verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt." Now, some people just right off the top, I'm going to give you the top four most popular views. There's like 10 of them. But these four views are held by really respected theologians. And this is why there's debate around it. Some people feel that this is teaching that Christians can lose their salvation and that they can become lost, that they can grieve God so much and backslide so much that they literally lose what God gave them. Some, some feel that this is a warning. That individuals who are Christians can move from this position of faith to a position of being disqualified for further service. And they remain in the milk of the Word their entire life. And they never mature into what God has called them to be. Uh, The third position is this. Some people believe this is an issue of lost rewards. That a person has become so disobedient to God that there's no rewards for them in heaven. matter of fact, they're just barely going to get into eternity by the skin of their teeth. Here's the fourth view. The fourth view is by some individuals that they believe that these are not true Christians who have received this letter. They've tasted of the Word of God. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. But what's going on is not real for them. A lot of this hinges on the word impossible and how you use the word impossible. And in the Greek language, it's possible to take the word impossible and interpret it as difficult. In certain applications, it could be used that way. But if you allow your eyes to drift down the page to verse 18 in your Bible, verse 18 says something very specific about God's nature. Anybody happen to see that and want to just shout it out? What is it impossible for God to do? Lie. That's right. Verse 18 says it is impossible for God to lie. It's the exact same word that's used up in verses 4, 5, and 6. It's impossible to restore someone. And so individuals who would say it's difficult to restore someone would then have to insert that word next to God when it says it's impossible for God to lie. 
do you believe in a God who cannot lie? You don't want to believe in a God for whom it's difficult to lie, right? That, I mean, see, it starts messing with your theology right away. You start thinking, wait, what do I believe about God? Well, I understand this word is what it says it is. You can't superimpose difficult there because you can't superimpose it next to God and His character and saying, well, maybe God can lie. That's not true. So the finality of the danger cannot be escaped here. It is what it is. So I'm confident this author is addressing individuals who, and I'm going to put this in quotes, who profess to be Christians and are acting like Christians. And so he's urging them to show the genuineness of their profession. He speaks to them as Christians. Remember last week? He said, you're in the milk of the word, but you ought to be teachers by now. Well, non-believers aren't going to be teachers. He's speaking to people who are acting as though they're Christians. He can't evaluate their inward condition. And this is very important. I talked to somebody after the 9 o'clock service who, who was really wrestling with this issue. Because we all know individuals who present themselves as Christians, but then seem to have just walked away from it. They're not living a life for Christ anymore. Did they lose their salvation? That person was really wrestling with this. He speaks to these people as though they are Christians. Why? Because you and I cannot evaluate someone else's inward condition. Only God gets to sit on the white throne of judgment. Only God knows what's really going on in our heart. So he's going to approach them as though they're Christians. But if they turn, they're going to show that their faith is false. If they're walking away, they're demonstrating it was never really real in their life. So it would be possible for him to have in the audience, just like we do in any church today, some people who have a true profession of faith, who really believe and own this, and they walk it and live it every day. But it's also possible to have spectators who have what might be considered a false profession. So it's really critical in the first century and in 2014 to understand the seriousness of what we're observing here. Because he goes on to say it's impossible to renew them again. These are people who claim to have had a real experience with Jesus. And yet, he's got this strong admonition. Now, he goes on to say that they've known some experiences by citing them in verses 4 and 5. It's kind of like an outline there. Just four things that I'm going to bear down into. It's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. And I want to move through those with you. He says, you've been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared the Holy Spirit, and tasted the Word of God. Well, what is that first one when it says in verses 4, 5, and 6, these are people who have been enlightened. It's the word fotizo. We get the word photograph from it in, in an English language today, but fotizo literally has this concept of shedding light on something, bringing understanding mentally, an awareness to something. So these are individuals who have been enlightened. They've got this intellectual perception of biblical truth, meaning they're mentally aware. It's not as though they're operating in some sphere where they've never heard about Jesus. Here's a real-world example in the first century. Jesus comes into a region known as Galilee. When he arrives in Galilee, we're told literally, Jesus' own words, the people who are living in a land of darkness have seen a great fotizo, a great light. That literally comes from Matthew 4.16. This is spoken of, of Jesus. Why? Because everyone in Galilee heard Jesus and saw Jesus, but did everyone believe in Jesus? See, not everyone who had fotizo responded. All heard, all saw, but not all were saved. 
the, the light of the gospel broke in on their darkness and their life could never be the same again. They've been permanently affected by Jesus' presence to some degree. But seeing God's light and accepting God's light are two different things entirely. Would you agree? That's a biblical truth. Just because someone is exposed to it and see it doesn't automatically make them a believer. That's, that's fotizo. That's, that's the enlightenment. Let's move on to the second one. They tasted the heavenly gift. What is that? One of the pre-salvation works of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit is active in someone's life prior to them becoming a believer, is that of giving us a taste of the blessings that can be experienced as a believer. In other words, somebody that came into a church service, for instance, and they never heard the gospel before, and they begin hearing that Jesus will forgive them of their sins, that He died and was resurrected, and He's coming again one day. Someone who hears that has tasted of this heavenly gift that God is offering. Meaning, like at Easter time or Christmas with the Christers, many, you're looking at me like, what is he? Christer, Christmas, Easter, okay. You, you got individuals who come in at that period of time and they hear of what God's offering. They taste it, but it's never become part of their life. It's never real to them. So many people see at Easter time the transforming power of who Jesus is. They hear the gospel and they're, they're part of the work of the Holy Spirit because He's drawn them in. But the Holy Spirit's never going to force feed you. You may taste of it, but He never crams it down your throat. That, that's that second part. They've tasted the heavenly gift. What is this one they shared in the Holy Spirit? I mean, that, that looks like they've got the Holy Spirit. It's very important that you understand the Greek language with this particular word because of the word that's in your notes this morning along the lines of shared. Look with me at this word very closely in your notes or on the screen. Metekos is talking about someone who is a participant as like an associate, as associating themselves. So these individuals appear to have never possessed the Holy Spirit. They're around when the Holy Spirit is around, it is possible to have an association with the Holy Spirit and to share in what He does and not be saved. Can I back that up from the Bible? Acts chapter 2. Peter, the disciples, they're all speaking to this massive crowd that's gathered. 3,000 people come to Christ in one day. Why? They saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicted them about what they did and who they are in the eyes of God. 3,000 people came to Christ in one day. But what about the other thousands who didn't? We stop and think about those individuals who were exposed to the activity of the Holy Spirit. They metekos, they associated with the activity, but they were never part of. The Bible never speaks of a believer in Jesus Christ as being an associate of the Holy Spirit. It always speaks of a believer in Jesus Christ as being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So did you know that you're indwelt by a spirit? Your, your spirit possessed this morning? Sounds kind of creepy, doesn't it? You, you, you think of demon possession when you think of spirit possession. Well, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God says that His Spirit dwells within you. You're possessed by the Holy Spirit of God. So if we're possessed by the Holy Spirit of God, He's dwelling within us. We're not an associate. We're actually those who are indwelt by Him. That, that's the third one. That's those who have shared. Here's the last one, the fourth one. They tasted the Word of God. Now, how is that possible? 
Well, the spiritual taste buds are sensitive or insensitive based on what you've heard and how often you've heard it. I mean, if you ate steak every single night of the week, eventually you're going to become tired of steak, right? It's possible to sit under the teaching of the good word, under the word of God, and never own it. Here's an example. Herod. Not Herod the Great, but Herod the Tetrarch, King Herod's son, who was fascinated with John the Baptist. He thought John was a great communicator. So he would actually sit or go to places where John was teaching. Or he invited him into the palace saying, I want to hear more of this guy. But when he was pushed to the point where he had to personally make a decision, he rejected not only God's message, he rejected God's messenger. He had John the Baptist beheaded. Why? Because somebody pushed him about whether he believed it or not. He disowned God's message. So that's someone who tasted of the Word of God. Now understand very clearly this morning, tasting of the good word is the first step to eating it's not wrong to taste it to some degree every one of you this morning have tasted somebody presented the truth of the gospel to you and you you looked at it and thought wow is this true i I can actually be forgiven of my sins that that's part of experiencing what god offers to you but what is wrong is when people stop with the tasting they just keep sampling and before long the spiritual taste buds they become indifferent So that's that four categories he's talking about here. And in the case of these recipients, they're looking like, they're sounding like, they're acting like believers. So the letter is to them to say, show the reality of your faith. Are you maturing in Christ? Or are you retreating and running away to what you believe is safe? So at some level, these people have engaged with the Holy Spirit. He's moved into their lives, perhaps to the degree of conviction of sin. But I want you to hear me on this, and please hear me very, very clearly. Conviction of sin is a work of the Holy Spirit, but it is not salvation. You get that? Conviction of sin is a work of the Holy Spirit, but it is not salvation. Conviction, meaning recognizing I need a Savior, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, is a recognition in the right direction. And what you do with that conviction of sin is, I can't do anything about this. I was born into sin. I need something to cover and remove my sin. And that's when the person recognizes, wow, that's what Jesus offers. So that conviction leads to repentance, which leads to faith in Jesus Christ. But conviction is not the same as salvation. Here's what is abundantly scary to me this morning. That someone can encounter the Holy Spirit that they can hear the truth of God's Word, that they can even be convicted of sin and not respond to the activity of the Holy Spirit in their life and yield their life to Jesus Christ and thereby never become a true believer. Can look like, can act like, can even become a spectator in the church but never really own it. Even to the degree in verse 5 that he says, they're witnesses of the power of the ages to come. How is that possible? Well, in the first century, they're living at the time that John, who wrote the book of Revelation, is still walking planet Earth. The disciples are still alive. They're seeing miracles take place. In the case of Jesus, just think of the city of Capernaum. Jesus stood on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee and said to an entire city, Woe to you, Capernaum! For if the things that have been done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, Sodom would have remained until this day. But I tell you the truth, Capernaum, you will go down to hell, and Sodom will stand upright and say, Woe to you, Capernaum. 
because we didn't have the light that you had. See, the people of Capernaum actually saw the Word of God. They saw Jesus. They saw the miracles, the power of the ages to come, and they still did not believe. Can the same thing happen in 2014? Is it possible that people can come into churches today and become enlightened? Fotizo. They can even associate with the worship and the praise in the auditorium and see the activity of God and yet still walk away from what they know and what they hear. See, that's why this author is saying repentance in this case is impossible because resistance eventually builds up an immunity. Our immune system kicks in and we hear the story over and over and over again and never act on it and we become immune to it. And that's why he says in verse 6, it is impossible to restore that one again to repentance. This is a severe warning. After having experienced all this and coming to an understanding of the gospel, the impossibility comes out of the fact that because they're guilty of crucifying the Son of God all over again. I want to explain that to you as we end this, but I want to just rabbit trail for you for just a minute. You might be sitting there this morning thinking, wait, Mark, I thought you'd been telling us all along that God is a God of forgiveness, that God will forgive anyone who comes to Him. Hear me, hear me, hear me on this. God will forgive anyone who truly repents. So when you look at this passage, you have to note it does not say that person cannot be forgiven. It says that person is impossible to repent. What's the difference? Repentance is an action of man. Repentance takes place in the mind. The person walking down, making a 180 degree turn, and coming back and saying, I was going the wrong direction. Scripture is saying it is impossible for that person to repent. We're talking about the man side of the equation. Here's why. It is possible to resist the grace of God so long in your life that your heart becomes so hard, repentance is an impossibility. See, it's not impossible for God because God is willing to bring them in. That's why Peter wrote, God's not willing that anyone would perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. See, that's God's desire. But it's impossible for this person to repent because they've resisted so long because they're so hard, they will not repent. That's what he's really talking about here. People who claim to have known God but finally turn away. And they're demonstrating they never knew him. Donald Guthrie has an interesting one-sentence quote for summing this up. He said it this way, the self-hardening, it produces something. This, This impenetrable casing which removes all sensitivity to the pleadings of the Spirit. And as a result, verse 6 says, they once again crucify the Son of God. It doesn't stop there though. It says, to their own harm. Put him to public shame. Uh, How does that play out? These individuals will not return because they've made a decision. As far as they're concerned, Jesus deserved to be crucified. Now, someone may not say that to your face. Someone in 2014 may not say to you, Jesus deserved to be crucified. I'm rejecting him. But mentally, they've held a trial in their mind. Just like these individuals that he's writing to. They they hold a mental trial with all the evidence before them. They decide he is not their Savior. Ultimately saying, I agree with those who crucified him. I reject him. I'm not going to identify with him. 
That's what Scripture says is a shaming of the Son of God. Literally nailing Him back to the cross. Saying He deserved to be crucified. I ask you, what hope is there for that person? What possible hope is there if they reject the only source of salvation? That's the point of no return. The obvious presence of the Son of God in their life rejected. That's the point Israel hit. That's the unforgivable sin, in case you were wondering. The point at which a person says, I reject it. It's not adultery. It's not addiction. It's not life regrets. God can handle all of that. There comes a point in which a person is so hard, they're unable to repent because of the hardness of their heart. Feasted on it, tasted it, but gone. Not interested, saying, I'm just not that interested. So the passage does not say God will not forgive. And I want you to hear me this morning. If you find that maybe that's you, that you're at this place where you've heard this over and over again, but you've never made it a reality in your life, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, but you're feeling the proddings of the Holy Spirit right now, I want you to hear me. You are so fortunate. You are. You are so fortunate that your heart is still tender and that you can respond because apparently, according to Scripture, some people get to the place where the line is drawn and they've crossed it and they can't respond. So verse 4 says they're enlightened. Verse 6 says they're now at the place where they're, they're holding him up to contempt. Public shame. What is that? The shame implies guilt. It implies that there's some guilt going on. So they're declaring openly Jesus was guilty. Now indirectly, they might be not saying, uh, directly might not be saying, but indirectly this is what it sounds like. I once thought that Jesus was everything. He was my highest value. And, and I wanted what Jesus offered. I studied His Word. I once thought that this was real, but for me, I now believe Jesus cannot make me happy. As though happiness is the goal. And so they believe Jesus is not better, as the title of our series implies. They would rather say, my former life is better. What I once knew, what I had before, I want that again. I don't want this maturing in Christ thing. I want to go back to what I once knew. That's why he's writing to them, because they want to go back to Judaism. They want to go back to what they once knew. Who can imagine, after having thrown such dishonor on Jesus, they'd ever come back again? It's going to sound really harsh, but that person takes their place with Judas. Walked with God. Talked with God. Ate with God. But in the end said, Thank you, no. I want nothing to do with that. Hear me. It is the opportunity for receiving salvation that can be lost, not salvation itself. So as you go out of here this morning, we're coming to the point where we're going to celebrate communion. I want to remind you of this. God keeps you secure in your salvation in Jesus Christ. You are not looking at a pastor who believes that people can lose their salvation. Your salvation is secure if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Jesus said it Himself. I, I want to remind you of this, just in case you're feeling some intimidation this morning that, that maybe I'm implying that you're losing or can lose your salvation. I want you to see this. John 10, 27. Jesus' own words. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. 
No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Isn't that a great promise? It's a promise from God Himself. So this perseverance that you have that your salvation is secure, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it doesn't come from you. You notice that when you look at that passage? You're in the Father's hand. It's not what you do to maintain your salvation. Nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand. That's why in Romans 8, Paul had this great treatise he wrote. He said, I'm convinced that neither angels or demons or principalities or powers, life or death, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I got to end this. Do you guys feel like I'm yelling at you? I'm not. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to (laughs) speak God's truth. Verse 7. For the land that has drunk the rain often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Very quickly, this is the alternative to progress. He's using this metaphor from agriculture. This, This metaphor is saying literally the rain comes on the same ground it's the same soil. The, grain, the rain is the gospel. It's the same message. But some people hear it and reject it. Some people hear it and it's a blessing. The ones who reject it, you don't have to do too many mental leaps to see what's going on. It says its end is to be burned. This is extremely intense. Should anyone who's been enlightened retreat, the end is ugly. It's not a pretty ending. So he uses this metaphor from agriculture to help them understand because these are the people who are the milk of the word that he's been writing to. And he's saying, there's no middle ground. You can't have the mushy gray area. You're either running away from or running to. Which are you? That's his purpose in writing them. Verse 9 ends our time together this way. It says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. Don't you think at this point the room gave a collective sigh of relief? <gasps> oh, he wasn't talking about us. Maybe, I'm probably superimposing that, but it's, we believe better things of you. What things? Verse 9 says, things that belong to salvation. Why is that significant? Because it's not apostasy. We believe better things than you than apostasy, which is returning and running away. We believe better things, namely salvation. So I asked you at the beginning, what can you do with this material in 2014? There's three potential responses based on how you view God. How you see God greatly determines how you approach this text this morning. So let me ask you this. How do you take this text and apply it directly to your life? There's some this weekend right now who feel a deep sense of conviction. I've already had people come to me after the other two services saying that very thing. I think I've treated the Word of God too lightly. I think I've treated my walk too lightly. And the sense of conviction is the Holy Spirit. Don't dismiss that. If you're feeling that right now, that's a great thing. That's the Holy Spirit being alive and active in your life, bringing conviction that you've got to take this more seriously. Now, others are going to come away with this incredible sense of freedom and maybe you stopped at that word ephemai. Wow, my sins God said goodbye to, and I don't have to worry about them anymore. 
maybe that's cool. That's wonderful if that's what spoke to you this morning. But there's others here who are leaving with a deep need. And the deep need is to share these principles with someone in your life. Because the chances are you know someone in your life who appear to have walked away. Whom you assumed knew the truth, but their life doesn't reflect it. And here's the reason why you may feel that need this morning to share these principles with them. Because it's possible that you have dismissed that person. Maybe your previous readings of this passage have caused you to say, that person's gone. There's no hope for them. See, God never said He wouldn't forgive. The author is saying it's impossible for the person to repent because their heart becomes so hard. If you've written off a person this morning thinking they're beyond God's reach, I implore you to look at this passage through a new lens. I, I had to do that myself because there's individuals that I've, throughout the course of my life, just thought, they're gone. There's no way they're coming back. Only to see them come back. Why? Because of dear saints who came alongside them and said, God still loves you. You can still repent. It's not too late. The author is saying, there's individuals, though, who will cross the line, and it's impossible. They'll be like Pharaoh, and their heart becomes so hard, nothing's going to get through to them. My recommendation for you this morning is not give up on those people in your life, but rather just show them what you know. Show them what you learned from the truth this morning. God still reaches. God still loves. God still cares. God still forgives. I'm going to pray with you that way this morning and we'll step into communion so that we can celebrate. Let's pray that God will bury this in our heart. Father, I ask that you would take this truth and and make it so real for our life that we can't help but share it with other people. Use it that way. In Jesus' name, amen.